Welcome to the School Psych Podcast, where we are learning brains and growing hearts. I'm your host, Ivana Luki. This podcast is meant to be a resource for caregivers and school staff, or really just anyone interested in the psychology of learning. Before we jump into this week's episode, just a small caveat. Although I work for a local school division, this podcast is a personal project, and it's unaffiliated with said school division. With that being said, let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome to episode five of the School Psych Podcast. Last episode, we talked about how to access a school psychologist if you're a parent or a caregiver or a teacher. It was a quick episode, very quick lesson. This episode, we are talking about anxiety. There are lots of different kinds of anxiety, and so we can kind of consider this a broad overview of what anxiety is, the different types, and then some general management or coping strategies for anxiety. This week's episode is based on a listener request, and just want to remind listeners that if there's certain topics you want covered, please email the podcast at schoolpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Like I say off the top, this podcast is a personal project, which means that between full-time work as a school psychologist and busy family life, I'm trying to find pockets of time to record, and it's um, I'm not pumping out episodes every day, and so emailing the podcast might mean the difference between a topic getting covered in a month or two months versus in six or seven months. So no question is a dumb question. Even if you're not sure if that's an appropriate ask of a school psychologist, if you don't email, you're saying no for me. If you do email and it's not a question for a school psychologist, I'll do my best to direct you to the appropriate professional and help you out with that. Okay, so tangent over. Let's dive in to this episode on anxiety. I'm not on the TikToks, but I dip in and out of the Instagram and I see a lot of talk about anxiety. I'm pumped that society is working so hard to reduce stigma around mental health and we're really starting to talk about some of these mental health challenges. However, there is a difference between just an anxious personality or um, worrying about an acute stressor in your life. That is a very normal part of the human experience. I think sometimes we gloss over that fact and compound that with a pandemic where kids for periods of time were in and out of school and they really missed a big chunk of opportunity to practice some of that social skills development and practice how to sit with or move through uncomfortable feelings. And then they were thrust back into these environments where you have to navigate social situations all day, every day, but they didn't really have the amount of practice that we would have expected by a certain age. And then they feel these uncomfortable, anxious, nervous, sad feelings and it feels unbearable to them. We make these throwaway comments about feeling anxious or, oh, I'm so OCD or, oh, I'm so ADD right now. Kids start to think, well, there's something wrong with me because I'm feeling these uncomfortable feelings. We may have done a disservice to our young people that we kind of glossed over the fact those uncomfortable feelings are a very normal part of life. I'm all for trying to help normalize and destigmatize mental health. We also have to emphasize stress is a part of life. 
as always, teachers, school teams are always working really hard to try and equip students with the tools to manage those uncomfortable feelings. But we're really still just getting back to that. We're just getting back into our buildings in a way that is feeling quote unquote normal and kids are having a hard time. Adults are having a hard time. But thinking about who might be listening to this podcast, none of this is new to you. So I can get off this soapbox now and address anxiety. I just wanted to emphasize that there's a difference between anxious personality and feeling anxious or nervous or worried and clinical anxiety. We're going to talk more about the difference in this episode. But what we really focus on as psychologists is something called functional impairment. And that is the degree to which something is affecting your ability to make and sustain relationships, your ability to develop academically, or your ability to work. I think a good place to start is what is anxiety? Before I reference the clinical, more official terminology used in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, let's talk about a more user-friendly description of anxiety. I like to think of anxiety as kind of a battle between our approach versus avoidance systems. Approach is the spice of life. It's how we move the needle forward in our lives. It's how we grow as human beings. It's how we take on new experiences. Avoidance in and of itself isn't exactly... A negative thing, it's actually necessary for survival. Like a really black and white concrete example that comes to mind is you are on a cliff and it's a super windy day and your knee jerk reaction is to not approach said cliff uh, or the edge of said cliff. And the um, that kind of an avoidance response is very adaptive and appropriate and probably helpful to your survival. If I think about a more real-life example of your avoidance system in a situation where it's making sense, I think about snowstorms. Here in Manitoba, we have a ton of them. So you had plans for brunch with your friend, and then you hear on the radio that the highways are closed, the roads are really bad, the visibility is really low, there's already reports of several accidents on the highway or on the roads, and you think to yourself, hmm, brunch was going to be fun, but how about we reschedule? It's not the most important thing today. That again would be a kind of normal avoidance response to a situation. That example is a more cognitive example. It requires thinking. If I think about an avoidance response that is more based in your bodily sensations, an example that comes to mind is again, classic Canadian, you're driving down the highway, maybe to Riding Mountain National Park, gorgeous park here in Manitoba, and you see two cute baby little bear cubs and you pull over on the side of the highway, you want to get a picture, you start snapping your pics, and then all of a sudden you see the mama bear on her hind legs, or maybe she's already charging towards the scene. You don't really think to yourself, hmm, should I get back to the car right now? Is that, should I kind of assess the situation here, weigh the pros and cons? No, you just run to the car. It's automatic. That is a very appropriate response to the situation. Your automatic fight or flight or freeze response turned on in the situation. It was flight and it 
jumped into action to keep you safe and alive. Now, anxiety is when your avoidance feedback loops have their volume turned way up. Your response in your body and your brain is out of proportion to the threat that is presented by a given situation. For example, a friend or a classmate invites you to a party and you immediately start to think, oh my God, what if I go to the party and I say something stupid and then everybody laughs at me and I'm the story for the next three to four weeks and all my friends start dumping me because of that thing that I said at the party and it wasn't really that funny and and then my life as I know it, it's over. So you decline an invitation to this party and immediately you feel a sense of relief. The racing thoughts stop. You feel less physical sensations, like you don't have the rapid heart rate anymore, your skin isn't as hot, your palms aren't as sweaty, your stomach has stopped doing butterfly flips inside, and yeah, you feel relief, aka the uncomfortable feelings have gone away. And then your brain tells you, oh, phew, that was a close call, we're safe, Thank God, let's never accept invitations to parties ever. And then compound that over time, you've missed out on opportunities to make friends, make memories, Um, people stop inviting you to things, you're essentially not living your life. That avoidance feedback loop, it's your brain telling you, it's trying to keep you safe, but it's kind of lying because the situation being presented, an invitation to a party, is actually maybe something you might want to approach in order to live your life. It's not a life-threatening situation. An invitation to a party is maybe a good thing, but your brain and body start to send you these signals and messages that this is a threat. And these uncomfortable feelings are not okay and we have to get rid of them. And then because you feel relief, you start to slowly avoid more and more of the trigger or stressor. You're not able to make and sustain friendships. It's impacting you in that way. Maybe it's also impacting you at work and you're not able to maintain employment. Or maybe you're a student and you're feeling so anxious about Um, tests and assignments that you stop going to class and you stop taking notes and then you start failing your classes or you have to drop out of school. That's when we start to differentiate between just feeling a little nervous about something coming up or having a nervous Nelly personality and actual anxiety that is causing functional impairment. Now I'll mention how the DSM describes anxiety. Anxiety disorders all share features of excessive fear and related behavioral disturbances. Fear is the emotional response to real or perceived imminent threat, whereas anxiety is anticipation of future threat. These two states overlap, of course, but they also differ. So fear would be more associated with surges in your nervous system that prepare your body for fight or flight, like when we talked about the bear example, whereas anxiety would be described more as um, like an increased muscle tension. Also, fear would be more like thoughts of immediate danger, whereas anxiety, you might be more preoccupied by thoughts about future danger. Lastly, fear might be more associated with escape type behaviors, whereas anxiety, you might think of more just kind of cautious or avoidant behaviors, like declining invitations to parties over several weeks, months, and years. All the anxiety disorders have this kind of 
cautious or avoidant behavior in common, but they would differ in the objects or situations that induce that fear or avoidance response. Uh, They also differ in their thought patterns. Some of the anxiety disorders are more common in childhood, but can still persist into adulthood, like separation anxiety disorder. In terms of prevalence of anxiety, it's generally more commonly diagnosed in females than males, and we don't always know why that is. It may be that it's actually higher in females versus males, or it may be that we're more primed to recognize that type of behavior in one population versus another. Now we're going to talk about each disorder under the umbrella of anxiety disorders, and we're going to list them in order of typical age of onset, which means the age at which symptoms typically appear. The first is separation anxiety disorder. This is when someone is fearful or anxious about separating from attachment figures. This involves persistent anxiety about harm coming to a parent or guardian, or it might be a fear of events that might lead to long-term separation from that parent or guardian. And then this leads to a reluctance to go away from those attachment figures. There might be uh, lots of nightmares happening, and there might be some physical symptoms experienced like stomach aches or headaches. In order for an anxiety disorder to be considered, um, symptoms have to be over and above what would be expected for a given developmental stage. So for example, you would probably expect an infant or a toddler to show some separation anxiety in those first few weeks of daycare. But a school-aged child, like a seven-year-old who is missing one or more days per week, because of anxiety and the separation anxiety, that is a bit over and above um, what might be expected for that child's age. And it's definitely impacting their overall development. Okay, the next anxiety disorder is selective mutism. This is a consistent failure to speak in social situations in which there would be an expectation to speak like school even though that child actually speaks in other situations. Sorry, that child or that person. I'm using the school lens, but certainly there are adults who can have selective mutism. These kinds of symptoms definitely affect a student's achievement um, or their friendships because they are really struggling with that social communication. And you might be surprised about that achievement piece because just just because a child is quiet doesn't mean they're not really good at reading or writing or math. But sometimes the adults misread the situation and they think the student doesn't understand the content because the student is struggling to communicate or express what they know. This isn't just a shy personality. There are tons of students who are just a bit more introverted and their temperament is just on the shyer side. And that is totally different because in this situation, selective mutism really impacts a child. There's lots of assumptions made about students' cognitive functioning, but in reality, those assumptions are often not accurate. On the next episode of the School Psych Podcast, I interview a speech-language pathologist, and we briefly talk about the misconceptions about selective mutism. Um, If there's an interest in a deeper dive on selective mutism, please write to the podcast and let me know. Okay, the next of the anxiety disorders is specific phobia. This is when we're fearful or anxious about exactly what it sounds like, specific objects or situations. Often the response to that stimulus is 
an immediate fear response or anxious response. And it's definitely out of proportion to the actual level of risk posed by that stimulus. So for example, if you're afraid of needles, say that's you, your specific phobia, then you avoid going to the doctors altogether for many, many years because you're afraid of the potential of even being asked about vaccines or anything involving needles. Another example might be if you have a specific phobia of vomit, you avoid large public places like a shopping mall or a crowd or a concert because you are so cautious about avoiding contracting the flu to stave off any potential that you yourself might have to vomit. Or maybe you really want to have a baby and you are really nervous about the possibility of morning sickness or in pregnancy, it's actually all the time sickness. I'm not sure why we call it morning sickness, Um, but you put off this huge life goal of yours and this part of life that you really want to participate in because you are so anxious about the possibility of vomit. That would be an example of a specific phobia. That type of cautious avoidant behavior is definitely impacting you negatively enough and your response in your behavior and in your thoughts is out of proportion to the actual level of risk posed by the vomiting. Specific phobia most often develops before the age of 10, um, and it looks different for adults and children. So for children, you might often see crying or tantrums or freezing or clingy behavior, and you're not necessarily going to see that same type of behavior pattern in adults. Adults are more likely to demonstrate just straight up active avoidance, whereas children, they can't necessarily always wrap their head around um, the idea of avoidance. And so they're going to express that fear and anxiety in a different way. Like I said, the crying and the tantrums. Again, we have to consider what's appropriate for certain developmental stages. So for instance, there are lots of really intense fears that really young kids have, like of monsters or of the dark. And even though that fear is really intense, those types of worries and anxiety are transient. They are not long lasting and they don't persist into adolescence and adulthood. And so in that kind of a situation, you're really not considering a diagnosis of a specific phobia. When diagnosing specific phobia for young children or any age children, you would really be considering, again, that level of functional impairment. So how much is the specific phobia in this child's life impacting their ability to make friends and sustain friendships and engage at school? Often, individuals with specific phobia can't even remember a particular event that kind of triggered this phobia. They just describe it as always having been there. Specific phobia is different than post-traumatic stress disorder. So if the anxious symptoms such as panic attacks develop as a response to a traumatic event, then that's when PTSD would be considered rather than a specific phobia. The fourth anxiety disorder that we're going to talk about is social anxiety disorder or social phobia. 
Often people think this is when um, people are just like anxious in general about social situations and relationships, but the actual thought pattern here is pretty specific to fear of being evaluated by others. So they really avoid situations in which you might be under any level of scrutiny um, from others like avoiding restaurants or any situation in which you might be seen eating or drinking um, or situations where you might be expected to perform or meet new people because those types of situations might present some kind of elevated level of being watched. And when you have social phobia, that is the primary concern. You're excessively afraid of what others might be thinking about you. This might develop slowly over time um, from maybe just a shy personality in childhood, or it might be in response to a humiliating situation that occurred, like a response to um, bullying or um, an, an embarrassing moment. The next anxiety disorder is panic disorder. The deal here is that in panic disorder, you have recurrent unexpected panic attacks. And so people with panic disorder become preoccupied and afraid of more panic attacks happening that are out of their control. And then they start avoiding situations that have nothing to do with anything they're afraid of. They're just avoiding situations because they don't want to be caught kind of having a panic attack in a public space where it might be embarrassing. Panic attacks are abrupt surges of intense fear or intense discomfort. They often feel like a heart attack and they reach a peak within a few minutes. Sometimes they might be in response to a specific stressor or just kind of a pileup of stress and then there's a straw that breaks the camel's back or sometimes they come seemingly out of nowhere. Panic attacks can actually exist as a symptom within many of the different anxiety disorders or in other mental disorders, such as in PTSD or in depression or in generalized anxiety disorder. But what differentiates um, those panic attacks from a diagnosis of panic disorder is that panic disorder involves a behavioral pattern of avoiding places because you're so afraid of unexpected panic attacks occurring. Whereas say you have depression and then you um, experience a panic attack, that's not necessarily panic disorder because your symptoms look different in depression than they would in a panic disorder. The age of onset for panic disorder is kind of after the school years, but children will sometimes experience what looks to be an anxiety attack or a panic attack in response to a stressor, uh, and that doesn't necessarily warrant a diagnosis of panic disorder, It's but it's definitely something to pay attention to for that child and monitor if it continues in response to a certain kind of stressor or if it seems to be happening out of nowhere. Like I said, panic attacks can often seem like a heart attack, but you also might experience sweating or trembling or shaking, sensations of shortness of breath or feeling like you can't catch your breath or you're choking, um, chest pain or discomfort, sometimes dizziness or a feeling of nausea, in, in kind of like a stomach ache or butterflies in your stomach. You might feel chills or hot sensations. There's clearly a lot of physical symptomology here that goes into having a panic attack. And that's why sometimes kids 
adolescents and adults have gone to the hospital or been taken to the hospital because their symptoms looked like something was medically or physically wrong happening here. Um, That's not necessarily the wrong response because you definitely want to rule out any medical cause, but sometimes the conclusion is that this episode was more based in anxiety than having a medical explanation, such as a cardiac event. All right, the next one is agoraphobia. And this is a marked or intense anxiety triggered by real or anticipated exposure to a wide range of situations like public transport, um, being in open spaces like an open air market, or being in enclosed spaces, standing in line or being in a crowd, being outside of the home alone, or any situations in which you think that escape might be difficult or help might be hard to get. This is, again, different from social phobia in that in social phobia, the primary concern is about being evaluated or scrutinized by others, whereas in agoraphobia, the primary concern of the individual is fear of not being able to escape or get out of a situation. Okay, we have two more. The next one is generalized anxiety disorder, and this is a persistent and excessive worry about various domains you know, at school or at work, the individual experiences physical symptoms like feeling restless or keyed up or on edge. Um, They might be easily fatigued. They might seem like they have difficulty concentrating because they're having so many racing thoughts or um, their mind might go blank sometimes. They might appear irritable. They might experience muscle tension or complain about sleep disturbances. Adults with generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD, tend to worry about different things than kids. Adults might be more concerned about um, job responsibilities or just kind of everyday routine life circumstances or the health of family members, whereas children with GAD are more likely to worry excessively about how good they are at something, the quality of their performance, or their competence. It might be described as perfectionism to the extreme. They might be anxious about how they're performing at school tasks, even though they're really not even being evaluated by others, or they might be overly concerned with how they're performing in a sport. They might be concerned about punctuality or about breaking the rules. They might seem um, excessively conforming or, again, perfectionistic, and they might seem a little overenthusiastic about seeking reassurance or seeking approval. When talking about GAD, I feel it's the most necessary to differentiate between a clinical anxiety disorder and just an anxious personality or anxiety about everyday life events. The worries associated with GAD would be, again, out of proportion and typically would interfere a lot with someone's social relationships and with their ability to again, sustain friendships, or even be able to go to work, do their job, go to school. The worrying is so pervasive and distressing, and it's longer in duration and frequency than it would be for just everyday worries and everyday stressors. Okay, the last one is substance or medication-induced anxiety disorder. That is exactly what it sounds like. 
uh, the symptoms are due to substance intoxication or to the withdrawal from a substance like alcohol, caffeine, cannabis, um, inhalants, or stimulants. The most frequently recognized feature in substance or medication-induced anxiety would be panic attacks. But again, it's not a panic disorder if there isn't that ongoing fear of recurring unexpected panic attacks. Okay, now we get to move on to the fun part where we get to sound a little bit more hopeful in talking about how we manage or cope with anxiety. I was really selective about using that word management because living with anxiety, especially if it's a clinical disorder, is not something that we can fix or solve and just have it go away and live a life without the luxury of anxiety. I wish there was a more simple solution or some kind of a magic bullet, but unfortunately, that's the whole deal with mental health. It waxes and wanes, and hopefully we learn to manage the hand that we are dealt from the deck of cards of life. If we're talking about managing that more intense level of anxiety, a clinical disorder, something that I'll just say right off the top is that this is something that's unlikely to improve with no action. So uh, if we just keep things status quo, things probably aren't going to get better. Soon I'm going to go on to talk about some of the more general strategies for coping with anxiety. But before I get to that, I will kind of address that intense level of anxiety and what the most important aspects of treatment are. It's more than likely that one of your first stops is going to be consulting with your doctor who may decide to consult with a psychiatrist, or maybe you prefer to work with a naturopath. But either way, you're going to want to talk to a qualified medical professional about the symptoms that you're having. I'm not sure how you feel about this, but they may prescribe a medication. And the point of medication, again, isn't to fix or solve things. Uh, It doesn't. But it may allow your brain to pause for just long enough to put some of your strategies into action. Sometimes people who have a really significant level of anxiety can't even begin to put some of those strategies into place because their symptoms are so elevated that they're struggling to focus on building those skills. Also, sometimes I hear this perception about medication being like a crutch when it comes to mental health challenges, and I want us to start rethinking how we look at that because medication is not providing someone with a mental health disorder a leg up when they're already starting miles behind someone with a neurotypical brain. If anything, it's just trying to level the playing field a little bit so that we can all cope with the stressors of life that are coming at us. I know that medication might not be the right answer for everyone, and I totally get that. I just want to challenge that idea that we really should be able to live life without medication because for some people that is not the case for a certain period of their life or for the duration of their life. Medication might not be forever for someone living with anxiety, but there is that chance that your doctor is going to suggest this as a part of your management plan. The next piece that is absolutely pertinent for someone living with this level of anxiety is therapy or counseling, and that is from a licensed professional. 
There are lots of different kinds of credentials for therapists and counselors. And trust me, I'm a huge proponent of finding the mental health expert that is a good fit for you. But for treating anxiety, you might want to consider someone who specializes in treating anxiety, uh, likely a clinical psychologist. They're going to use techniques known to be effective for anxiety, like cognitive behavior therapy or exposure therapy. Um, Exposure therapy in a child-friendly sense could be referred to as the ladder of courage, and it involves just tiny little baby steps working from the easiest level of exposure to the stimulus that you're afraid of and building from there. And I'm talking very small baby steps. And someone who specializes in anxiety is going to be skilled at helping you outline some of those steps and what might be realistic for you and not pushing in too fast. Cognitive behavioral therapy can be done in tandem with exposure therapy, but this is where your clinician will identify thinking traps and different patterns of negative or inaccurate thinking. They'll help you challenge some of those inaccurate patterns so you can slowly shape and change the way that you're thinking and behaving and moving through life. Okay, let's move on to some of the well-established strategies for managing anxiety that would be not only helpful for someone living with a pretty intense level of anxiety, but also someone just looking for more tools to add to their tool belt in how to cope with some of those big uncomfortable feelings like anxiousness or worries or excessive nervousness. I'm going to divide this into proactive strategies versus reactive strategies. By proactive, I mean these are the things that we're doing ongoing, uh, more lifestyle habits that prevent the growth of anxiety or help treat anxiety. What I mean by reactive is what are the things that we're doing in the moment when anxiety strikes, when we're having some pretty intense symptoms? Okay, in the proactive category... We already talked about consulting with a medical professional, so I won't go back there, but let's now talk about, (laughs) I'm laughing because I know this is going to elicit a lot of eye rolls. Let's talk about exercise. This applies across the lifespan. This isn't just for adults. This is also for children and adolescents, but exercise is known to be effective in helping to treat mental health challenges. We have so much research on this now. I know it's annoying to hear, but that's going to be my number one suggestion is how often is a child or a person moving their body? I'm not saying every person has to be doing some kind of hardcore strength building Tabata intense hit interval workouts. I'm just saying that moving our body is necessary for supporting our mental health. So what does that look like for you? What's a way that you can move your body that you actually enjoy so it's going to be sustainable? For some people, it's running. For some, it's walking. For some, it's yoga. And for some, it's swimming. For some, it's just dancing in your living room. Just figure out a way that you can take breaks throughout the day or introduce more movement into your life. If I'm going to get into the brain side of this, exercise releases endorphins. So that's some of those feel-good chemical messengers in the brain that are helping to battle some of those negative thought patterns and some of those physiological symptoms of anxiety. 
exercise is going to help your body regulate in order to get control over some of those symptoms. Okay, the next proactive strategy for managing anxiety is meditation. This can look a lot of different ways. For some people, accessing guided meditation through an app or through YouTube is helpful and doable. And for others, it might be the breath work. And then for some of us whose bodies are more on the move, we're going to benefit from more of a movement meditation or mindful movement, it's sometimes called. That might be a walk where we're really being conscious of our surroundings and of how each step feels. Or it might mean yoga where we're really paying attention to some of those interoceptive cues within our body. Okay, the next proactive strategy is journaling. Yep, none of this is rocket science. You've probably heard all these strategies discussed before, but I really like identifying what are some of the lifestyle habits that we can incorporate to support our mental health versus um, how are we going to respond to anxiety in the moment. And so for journaling, I really view that to be uh, a proactive strategy to help ourselves identify some of those negative thought patterns and challenge them. If a blank page or a blank canvas is really scary to you, then I would suggest Googling CBT journal prompts or just journal prompts in general. Sometimes having a sentence starter can help you get over that hump of, oh, this page is blank and I don't really know how to start this stream of consciousness. And then before you know it, you just get going and you've written three pages and you've really looked at where your thinking traps are and how you might be able to challenge some of those in the future. Okay, the next strategy is planning ahead. So by that, I mean looking at your calendar and actually making time for things that you love and that fill your soul or things that you need like art or social connections. The whole point of planning ahead is so that you avoid letting your calendar happen to you. Rather, you happen to your calendar. You plan your calendar. Sometimes life gets in the way and we just think, oh, I really need to make more time to hang out with my friends. And then six months goes by and you haven't made that connection that is um, integral to your mental health. We are social beings and we need that. We can't expect that our anxiety is going to improve if we aren't reaching out to our friends and family. Okay, before I move on to talking about some of the reactive strategies for dealing with anxiety in the moment when it comes up, I want to touch on how we support children in building those tools to manage anxiety. For kids, it's known that helping them to learn about the brain and how it works can be really helpful in terms of their own management of anxiety. A resource that helps with this in education is called MindUp, and students learn about the different parts of their brain and the role that they play when we're having emotional responses, like what is our amygdala doing and our prefrontal cortex, and what is the hippocampus doing, and what's the role of the brainstem? And you'd be surprised how much kids grab onto this language. Learning about the brain is cool. And so when we understand what's happening for us in our brain and in our body, when we're experiencing uncomfortable feelings, suddenly the ball is back in our court and we feel like we have some control and some choices over how we're going to handle that. Another resource that's helpful for kids to understand how worries grow and the impact that they have on our lives and what are some of the things we can do to stop them from growing so big is a book, like a workbook called What to Do When You Worry Too Much by Don Hubner. 
I promise this is not a paid ad. I really like this workbook because there's opportunities for kids to draw. It's not just a workbook where they're expected to write, 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 write. It's kind of in told in a storybook fashion, and it's a little more engaging for kids than just fill-in-the-blank worksheets. Another way that we would want to support kids is by making sure that they have some sort of a a counseling or trusted relationship with at least one adult in their school building. That might be a school counselor, it might be a support teacher, it might be a school social worker, and sometimes it's the school psychologist. But they really need a connection with someone that they trust and that they feel safe with so that they can share their concerns and kind of work through some of those worries. Talk therapy isn't always the most effective approach for kids. That's often used for adults and adolescents. But for kids, we might learn about our feelings through doing. We might use art therapy or music therapy. We might use drawing or play therapy. Some kids are comfortable to just sit and talk, but a lot of kids need to be focused on something else and doing something with their hand to be able to process through some of the emotions that you're talking about. A school counselor might be meeting with students one-on-one to help them practice some of their anxiety coping strategies like deep breathing or positive self-talk, but sometimes school counselors are working in classrooms and teaching this content to the entire classroom because like I said before, this isn't just for anxious kids. These are life skills that would benefit everyone. Now for parents at home, some ideas for supporting some of those kids who present with some of that generalized anxiety, some of those perfectionist tendencies, here's some ideas for how you might support them. First of all, modeling healthy self-talk. So showing kids that we all make mistakes and we can't be perfect at everything. Mentioning something like, oh my gosh, Mom left her lunch at home today, and then I had to step out during the school day because I made that mistake, and tomorrow I'm going to try to do better, but I'm not going to beat myself up about it too much. Kids need to understand that we all make mistakes. You can even share stories about your own failures that are even larger in scale. So maybe a story about how you really had a hard time with a project at work and It affected you so much that you realized maybe this isn't the line of work for you. You gave it a shot and now you're going to try a different kind of work or a different kind of job. As much as we want to protect kids from what really are adult responsibilities, we also want to model for them that we're learning too and that we make mistakes as well. It's also great to talk out loud factors that you can and can't control. So it might be upsetting to us that yet another snowstorm has hit Manitoba, but that's out of our control. So how are we going to handle our uncomfortable feelings and our upset feelings about that? Rather than talking at them, we're kind of workshopping with them and being curious about what they think might be a helpful strategy. Like, oh, I'm really bummed about this snowstorm, but I can't control it. (sighs) What should we do to make ourselves feel better about this? And see what they come up with. Sometimes we're surprised. The last suggestion I'll share regarding how we support our kids is try to praise effort over outcome. So maybe commenting, wow, I really love this story that you wrote. I can tell you worked really hard on it. What do you like about your story? Rather than, I love this story. You did such a great job because you got 10 out of 10. 
Okay, now let's move on to talk about some of those reactive strategies for when anxiety shows up in the moment. I mentioned breathing before, but that was in the sense of breath work. And by that, I mean a guided meditation that is helping you practice your breathing in a more preventative way. But deep breathing is actually a strategy that can help you calm your body and calm your brain when you are feeling really anxious. When you're having that kind of experience, like an anxiety attack or some intense physiological feelings of anxiety, like rapid heart rate or sweaty palms, the upstairs part of your brain, meaning your prefrontal cortex or that part of your brain that really logically reasons and makes sound decisions, it's kind of offline for the moment. You might have heard the term lizard brain before, and that is referring to kind of the downstairs parts of your brain, the lower parts of your brain, like your brainstem and the limbic region, which includes the amygdala. These are the parts of your brain that react very automatically rather than requiring a whole lot of thought and reason, which is appropriate when you are running away from a charging mama bear, like we talked about before. But when our automatic downstairs brain response is out of proportion to the danger being presented, what you need to do is bring that prefrontal cortex back online. And conscious deep belly breathing is a very effective way for doing that. Not only is your brain trying to focus on something else other than the stimulus or the worry, you're also engaging your parasympathetic nervous system. That's the part of our nervous system that helps us to rest and digest. That sounds very calming, right? It's the sympathetic nervous system that triggers that fight, flight, or freeze response. And what we need to do is kind of use a mental hack on our body, like deep breathing, that's going to help calm that nervous system so that we can come back online and start using some of our more logical reasoning abilities. And that's where we're going to start using some of those cognitive behavioral strategies like self-talk. There are lots of different deep breathing strategies available. One that comes to mind that is used often in schools is box breathing or square breathing. So you picture a square and you breathe in for a count of four and picture yourself going up the side of the square and then over the top of the square, hold for four counts, breathe out for four counts and you're going down the side of the square and then hold for four counts and you're going along the bottom of the square. So the square is just some visual imagery to remind yourself of um, breathing in, holding, breathing out and holding for four counts each. And you repeat this several times over until you feel that calming effect on your body. Lots of teachers will use five finger breathing to teach deep breathing strategies to younger kids because your hand is always with you and it's an e- another easy visual. So you take your finger and you kind of trace it along um, the fingers of your other hand, kind of up and down and up and down until you get to your last finger and so as you're going up you breathe in and as you're tracing down you breathe out another one that we like to use with small children is 
flower candle breathing. So you picture that you have a flower on one shoulder and a candle sitting on the other shoulder. And you're going to breathe in the flower. You're smelling the flower for three counts. And then you turn your head over to the other shoulder and you breathe out and you're blowing out the candle for three counts. So smell the flower for three counts and blow out the candle for three counts. So that's just three examples that come to mind. But like I said, there's lots of different strategies for helping you practice your deep breathing. Okay, the next strategy for reacting or responding to some intense anxiety in the moment is going to seem counter to what I was talking about at the very beginning of this episode in terms of approach or avoidance, because I suggest kind of disengaging from the situation, get a change of scenery, and go for a walk. But Ivana, you said anxiety is all about the avoidance cycle. Yes, absolutely. That is when we are able to access our upstairs brain and actually use some of those self-talk strategies. But when we're in a moment of crisis, we need to, like I said, engage that parasympathetic nervous system and reset. A short walk and a change of scenery can often help with that. You're not leaving the situation forever. You're just helping your brain to come back online. Okay, the next strategy is visualization. So depending on the kind of anxiety that we're working with, this is going to look different for everyone. But in general, this is when you're able to picture, aka visualize, a scene or a setting or a place that's very calming for you. For me, I like to imagine the lake. My family likes to go out to the cottage and be by the water and I try to really picture all the sounds, sights, and smells of that place because that's another great way to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, calming your brain and your body. For you, maybe it's Hawaii and you're feeling the sun on your skin and you're smelling the salt from the ocean and you're pretending to feel the sand on your feet Just trying to really um, imagine all of those very specific aspects of your calming scene. For some, your happy calming place might be picturing yourself in your Baba's kitchen while she bakes cinnamon buns and you can smell obviously the cinnamon, but you're also picturing the fridge and where is the stove and where is your Baba in the room and what are you doing? Is there a table in front of you? What are you sitting on? Just really trying to insert yourself into that scene. Okay, the last two strategies are related to each other. The first one is progressive muscle relaxation. This could kind of fit into the proactive and reactive category, but I put it here because this is a way that we focus our attention away from the anxiety-inducing trigger and towards our body. A lot of people might need to start with a pre-recorded progressive muscle relaxation exercise. You could definitely find them on YouTube before they're able to do that independently. Essentially, you're working your way from your head to your toe or your toe to your head, hence the term progressive, and you're focusing on each body part at a time, intensing them and relaxing them. So you might start with your right foot and you can feel your toes and you're going to tense your toes as much as possible for a few seconds and then release. Now you're going to move to your ankle and so on and so on and so on. 
Lots of people use progressive muscle relaxation at nighttime when they're having trouble sleeping because anxiety has visited them and they're having hundreds of racing thoughts and there's no way they're going to be able to get to bed. But it can be used out and about in the community when you're dealing with anxiety. That's just why I would recommend listening to some pre-recorded exercises first because it's kind of hard to just do this on the fly. It kind of takes some practice to get the hang of that first. The last strategy that is related to progressive muscle relaxation is grounding. Grounding involves focusing on your five senses in that moment. One of these grounding strategies is called the 54321 technique, in which you look around and name five things you can see, either to someone that you're with or just in your head. Um, so, five things you can see, four things you can touch, you know, maybe the chair on your bum or you can feel your feet on the ground. So, five things you can see, four things you can touch, three things you can hear two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. The point of grounding is that when we have anxiety and our brain starts to go offline, we start to detach from the situation around us and we start to detach from reality and our brain starts to race and our body kicks into overdrive and we need a way to just pause all of that. Progressive muscle relaxation is helping us to focus inwards. It's kind of more of an internal experience, whereas grounding is taking the external experience and bringing it inwards. Now that I've shared a handful of strategies for how to respond to anxious feelings in the moment, I'm going to emphasize the kicker here. And that is none of these strategies are helpful if you didn't already practice them when you were calm. We tell kids this all the time. But somehow as adults, we sometimes just gloss over this for ourselves. We're not special. We're not superheroes. We also need to practice these strategies when we're calm. The chances that we're going to be able to actually use these strategies in a moment of crisis is much more likely if we had the chance to practice them when we were regulated. It's the same for kids. That's why we often practice breathing strategies as a classroom when most of us are in a regulated state, we're ready to learn. If a student is having a really hard time at school, we're not going to just start shouting at them to use their breathing strategy if they've never really practiced that before. They're probably going to escalate even further. It's like telling someone to relax when they're already panicking. Okay, I think that's all I have for us on our deep dive episode on anxiety. I don't know if you can tell, but I am losing steam. My voice is going. I've been talking for almost an hour now, and it's midnight, and I'm kind of tired. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope it was helpful. I hope there was at least one thing that you took from this episode that you didn't know before or that you might try in the future. We first talked about what differentiates anxious personality or just normal everyday worries from clinical anxiety. And that is the degree of functional impairment. How much is it affecting your relationships or your ability to go to school or to work? We also talked about what is anxiety in the sense of an approach versus avoidance cycle. And we also talked about what is anxiety according to the DSM. Then we listed all the different kinds of anxiety in the DSM 
and then moved on to talk about anxiety coping if you are diagnosed with a disorder, but also just those proactive and reactive pieces if you're looking to add more tools to your tool belt. I'm looking forward to hearing any feedback on this episode, and I'm also looking forward to releasing the next episode, which is entitled, What Does a Speech-Language Pathologist Actually Do? If you have any questions or topics of interest you want me to cover, please email the podcast at schoolpsychpodcast at gmail.com. If you find the podcast helpful, please rate and review wherever you listen so others can find it. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next time on the School Psych Podcast. Podcast.